Welcome to Creative Innovators. We are sharing a podcast this week with our sister podcast in the Marimel Podcast Network, Innovating Music. It is now part of the network. It has uh, four years of production under its belt, so please find that here and wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Our guest today is Dick Huey. He claims that his career jumps have been educated luck. He shares with us his 25-year career, which ranged from teaching software applications to getting his first music management client, to building his digital music chops at Beggars Group, and to building Toolshed. He works now on his three-legged stool of adventures. He helps big picture enhancements of the music business. He works with record companies, and he's engaged in ed tech and new technologies. Enjoy this episode and come find us at our next episode. You have how many hats now? How many different things do you do now? So really, my business now is broken into three verticals. The first vertical, and this is going to sound a little wonky, but this is what we do. So uh, we're a wonky company. Uh, the first vertical is really focused on business development for post-revenue middleware or business-to-business software that's used inside the music industry. And, you know, clients that... We probably lost half our audience already with that, with the we middleware. Might have, we might and, have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to have a... So, so what is the company and what is it? What's the... So it's a business-to-business... Company name is company name is Toolshed. That's my company. Toolshed. Mm-hmm. We have a three-legged stool that loosely, I'll be less specific about it, that loosely does business development for select companies that I think have really strong products. Um, we also do music license acquisition, usually for tech companies, but often for record labels that either are licensing their catalog out to uh, a digital music service, for instance, like Spotify or Amazon, or companies that are building a music product and need licenses. So um, uh, we'll acquire those licenses for them. And then the third part of what we do, I loosely put under ed tech, educational tech, and new tech. And that's, that's the part of our company where I get to teach, I get to explore, I get to be an advisor for companies that are building an interesting product, but maybe they're startups and they don't really have a business model yet, or they don't have any revenue. And I get to play there. It's my sandbox. Cool. How many different careers and companies have you worked for? Well, not actually all that many, you know, This is one of the things that um, I think uh, maybe is a little confusing about what I do. I've been a consultant longer than almost anybody I know. I started my company back in 2002, Toolshed. And prior to that, I worked at Beggars Group for six years as their global head of digital. And those are really my only two proper music industry credentials, if you will. Now, under the guise of Toolshed, we've pivoted several times. First time, you know, I, when we started our business, I, you know, I built a business that was an offshoot, if you will, of what I was doing at Beggars Group. 
So at Beggars, as global head of digital, I was in charge of of negotiating licenses. I was in charge of articulating strategy, group digital strategy. And so I took that model when I started Toolshed and said, let me see if I can offer that very same model to independent record labels who don't have an in-house person. And remember the timing of this. This was at 2002. This is before Apple Music or iTunes, as it was called back in the day. But after Napster. Uh, it was after Napster. It was after Rhapsody. But it was in that sort of nether zone before Steve Jobs made that big announcement at that independent label event that he had in Cupertino. And, you know, prior to that, digital music was such a small percentage of revenue for the average independent record label, they couldn't have fired, they couldn't afford to bring somebody in house. And I filled that need for them. So I came up with a product that was a digital marketing product. That really most independent labels didn't have a digital marketing person. So for a flat consulting fee, I would provide all of their digital marketing, which was mostly blog promotion at that point. I would provide digital licensing services. So for their licensing out to Apple or Spotify or whoever it was, well, Spotify wasn't around then, but Apple. All the precursor companies. The precursor companies. Listen.com yep. and whoever else was <laughs> Yahoo, in the space back then. All of those. Uh, I would do all of it that It was a licensing. crowded space back then. Yeah. Now this may be before the time of some of our listeners, but I'm going to haul you further backwards. So, you seem to wear a business hat, a tech hat, and a creative hat, kind of pulling it together and integrating that. I'm going to walk those hats backwards. When you were a teenager, what was your hat? Were you a member of a band? Did you code your own computer stuff? Um, were you, you know brokering deals with your friends to buy and sell their worldly goods. What was, what was Dick as a teenager? What was his heartbeat stuff? So teenager, I grew up in a very small town in Northern Michigan and I didn't do any of that. I didn't do it. I didn't, <laughs> the music that I listened to was really what was on the radio, which was just the sort of most, banal and obvious 80s, 70s or 80s music that uh, is still, you know, the radio station that I listened to. In fact, in northern Michigan, I listened to on a recent trip back there, and they're playing exactly the same music they were playing in 1980. But when all of this really hit for me, it was a little after teenage years. It was, I went to University of Michigan, and that's when I started going out to shows. It's also when I picked up the guitar for the first time and pretty much right after I graduated in connection with a girl that I met, I started picking up the guitar in earnest. Funny how that works. And well, what did teenagers still think you wanted to do then? If it wasn't this, what, what did you spend your time on and what did you decide to study at university of Michigan? So when I was a teenager, what I found out, what I found really early was that I had a skill for assembling people, for getting people together and 
and orienting them towards a goal of one kind or another. So I did a lot of athletic things because that's really what there was to do in Northern Michigan at the time. A lot of individual sports, skiing, windsurfing, I instructed. And all of that sort of came back to me later in, in Dick Huey 2022, which we can get to later. But back then... We loop. We loop. That is one of the great things. Like we, we loop it back again. Back then, I was really just a sales guy. I was someone who enjoyed selling. I enjoyed meeting people, talking to people, figuring out what they needed. And I thought that was where my career was going to go. And it kind of did. But So what concerts did you go to in the... What, early 80s in in Michigan? Yeah, it would have been the early 80s. So I got, I would say probably the first band, this is really going to be embarrassing um, in future generations when I hear this, but the first- As embarrassing as my list would be at that okay, time. Okay, well, well, my first concert was the Cars. Um, that part isn't embarrassing. I thought that was a great first concert to go to. But the first band that I really, really poured myself into was actually Genesis. and And it was- the Peter Gabriel end of Genesis that I thought was fascinating and did a way too much air guitaring to way too much listening to records over and over and over Genesis and Joni Mitchell. Those were my two touch points. Mm. And while I was at Michigan, I, I was exposed to what I'd loosely call new wave. So new order and, I thought, oh, there's a whole different universe of music that I didn't know anything about out there. And that really took on serious legs a, a little bit later out of the teenage years. But so Michigan for me was, I did a creative uh, creative degree. It was, uh, it was a customized degree. So I have a Bachelor of General Studies. As one should if one can. I'm a gigantic <laughs> fan of those. Well, did you hear the, the title? So the title of it was Bachelor of General Studies. So I don't think you could get more general than that. Um, but under that catch-all, I did international business. I was an exchange student in Sweden for a year. So I did Swedish language and German language. I really have always had a knack for languages. I think it's connected to my music interest. And I also did... Uh, a fair bit of sort of computer related work. So I did some programming. I wasn't a great programmer, but I definitely explored that area. And what I found was I was better at contextualizing what was happening on a computer for somebody than I was actually trying to program it or do something uh, or create an application. And that followed me out of the University of Michigan. My first my first career when I when I sort of went all in on music, uh, the thing that generated some money for me was in teaching software applications to classes. So I would stand up in front of the class and I would teach them how to use Excel or WordPerfect or some of these really early Lotus One Two Lotus three. One Two Three, all of it, and it was all of those things. It was the kind of thing where I could get up the morning I had to do this, look at the application, figure it out enough to teach the class. So very sort of last minute. And I spent all the rest of my time playing guitar or hanging out with musicians and, and going to shows. And, and, uh, and that was how it, that's how I got into the music side of things. Um, so about this time, I think we're of a similar vintage. 
um, I got accepted to USC film school and I had been a nice, respectable international relations, public relations, double major. And my parents were so happy because they thought, ah, with film school, you'll get a job, which meant they really didn't understand the entire thing that was going on. So what did your parents think of you coming out with a general studies major? Spending a lot of your time playing air guitar and uh, and guitar, <laughs> and um, what did they think that you were going to do? And did they have um, consulting type or traditional or non traditional careers? What was kind of the the model for a creative or a non creative life that your family brought you? Well, so this is a an interesting question in our um, in our particular family. So we had. Um, my, so my mother's brother was gay and, um, he was an artist in New York city. So we had this eclectic and creative individual. Remember I'm from Northern Michigan. So very sort of closeted, white, uh, small part of the world, but we lived in a resort community. So there were a lot of city folk that came up. So it was a progressive community in some sense. And when my uncle would come to visit the artist of the family, you know, he would, it was the seventies, he would smoke pot and, uh, you know, I never saw him do it, but I'm sure he was doing it and sit and listen to Pink Floyd. And I could never quite figure it out. So <clears throat> we always had this sort of this, this individual in our family who had come into it and I found him really, really interesting. Um, and I think that spilled over into my parents' estimation of what I was getting interested in. So it was kind of a love hate relationship. My mom, for instance, gave me a book at one point, which when I was expressing how interested I was in the music industry, the book was do what you love and the money will follow. And I thought, oh, how progressive of my mother. And then she proceeded to spend the next five years saying, this isn't going anywhere. You're not going to make Go any money at this. Go get a job. <laughs> <laughs> Go get a job. <laughs> so, you know, it was what it was. But, um, oh. but did you have models of traditional static, single company, career, regular job people? Um, for your father, or is that kind of his? My father his was stick? was was always self employed or had partnerships. He he was commercial real estate, is still a commercial real estate broker, and so you know what I recall from that time was a lot of stress around money, uh, which manifested in my parents' relationship, but. Um, I also recall sort of the sexiness, if you will, of having your own thing. I'd never had a corporate model really anywhere inside my family. So, you know, I think I was predisposed at a pretty early age to try to do something on my own. And I did, you know, in those years post-college, I thought at one point that the way you made yourself look impressive and like you had it all together was coming up with as many different things to do as you could. And so when someone would ask me, what do you do? I would say, well, I sell water filters and I teach computer classes and I have this idea for an exercise machine that my uncle started. And, you know, I thought that was 
what people were looking for. I thought they wanted to see how many things I was engaged in. And what I came to realize, you know, 20 years later was, no, you got to focus. You got to drill down into something people are looking for. You'd have specific expertise and digital music was that specific expertise. But to get to that point, I had to move out of a really inspecific interest in the music business, which basically involved going out to, you know, shows three or four nights a week at a club, living with musicians, living extremely hand to mouth. I can, I can remember many instances where I would think, all right, I'm going to sell a CD so I can go get some a burrito tonight for dinner and playing guitar, um, you know, trying to live the life, if you will, but not really doing the other part of it, which is, which is uh, creating music that um, might have a business attached to it in some way or another. Mm. So I was sort of going through all the motions, but not really doing the creation part. And what I found out pretty quickly was I was better at the business side of it than I was at the performance side of it. I did perform. I played with Vic Chestnut once. I opened for him. That was pretty, probably a highlight in my career as a musician. But as soon as I found my first management client, who I signed to a small record label over in Germany called Glitterhouse Records, I thought this is actually where I want to plant my flag. I did tour management for her on a seven-week European tour, which was a great lucky coincidence. I got to drive the van. I got to try to meld a bunch of very disparate personalities in one van together and hold them all together and uh, not have to fight with me or with themselves. And I kept doing that tour management in the following years and the artist management piece. And now what years were these? This would have been late eighties. I started that. My first client was out in Portland and, um, and then following with two, those are CD days. Those are CD days. Yeah. And following with two other management clients, both of whom were assigned to beggars group or to beggars banquet at the time. So the, the first one, June was a band that had a lot going on in Chapel Hill. I had, I had been living in, in North Carolina prior to that. And, got very close with this band. Uh, they had two offers on the table, one from Epic Records, one from Beggar's Banquet. They took the Beggar's Banquet offer, which I think shocked the A&R guy from Epic. And I'm not sure he recovered from that for a while. And we put out a genius record that was produced by Jim Rondinelli. So, you know, all of the, I, I sort of put all the piece in pl- pieces in place, I thought, for a great career and management um you know the record came out on beggars they did their first north by northeast up in toronto and then the band split and so i panicked and tried to put it back together couldn't put it back together five very different personalities in one band but by that point i had established a a relationship with beggars group um beggars banquet more specifically who had just opened a new office in New York. And over the, the uh, next couple years, I signed a second band 
to beggars, this uh, band Stella that was uh, Kurt Perkins and Alan Johnstone, uh, Charles Wyrick, and Preach, uh, a couple of guys from Nashville, super talented, very loud, very heavy. And uh, and this is going to uh, officially connect me to the music business now. So um, three weeks before, three <laughs> yeah, this weeks. This is before. music business, working as a <laughs> working as a guitar player and managing bands that are starting. That's all still the music business. It's just not heavy in the business. Well, out. well, it was all it was all investing in my future, if you will. So uh, I hadn't really made. I mean, I'd probably made under ten thousand dollars aggregate for ten years of work in music. So I thought of it as my career. It really was more of a hobby. But about three weeks before before Stella's initial record was supposed to come out on Beggar's Group or on Beggar's Banquet, um, the marketing guy at Beggar's quit. And um, so I called the label head. We both panicked. And I said, all right, I'm going to move to New York. I will run marketing. So there's going to be marketing on this record and beggars banquet bid on that. And that's how I moved from where I was at the time. And I were Michigan with a wife and two small kids to New York city. And, uh, so this was a jump. This is a pivot. This was a, I'm now going to do this. Now I'm assuming that you made more than $10,000 during this time to feed wife, children, or wife was working or children were working. What was the other mix of your life when you were juggling the music and management side of your life? What else was the skills you were building with other stuff? So, so the, the income generation was not on the music side. The income generation was on, I had a company called a train and it was on the training side and custom configuration of computers, both Macintosh and PC. So this is mid nineties, which was a big deal back then. It was yeah, yeah people teaching didn't people how to, to use their computers, <laughs> and, and it was easy. It was something that I could that I could balance with spending as much of my time as possible on the music side of what I did. You know, uh, in contrast to what happens today, there weren't. I mean, there were very few music programs, full-on music programs at that time. It was either probably Berkeley or maybe one or two other schools, um, at least on the on the business side of music. There were plenty of music programs. Mm -hmm. But if you wanted music business, you really kind of winged it. And so um, the last thing I would say about that that chunk of history is by doing all these different parts of the music business, being a manager, booking my own tours, being a tour manager, going out with Ron Sexsmith and um, uh, Sarah McLaughlin and a number of other bigger artists at the time, doing a shed tour, understanding you know, what it means for the stage to be dark when you arrive there. I, I learned all these bits and pieces of the music industry by doing them. So when I actually came to Beggar's Banquet, I had a pretty good, a pretty good uh, idea of what the music industry was from a manager's perspective, which of course is an accidentally well-rounded experience. It was an accidentally well-rounded experience. That's exactly right. 
So marketing then, because people think probably of marketing now and have a probably a totally different idea of what music marketing is and was. So when you came into this, you were stepping into marketing, having not really done it this way before. What was this marketing job that you stepped into? And then was there any magic or bizarreness of it for walking into somebody else's shoes who had just walked out the door? So, uh, Corey, the guy that walked out the door, um, became a huge manager in his own right in later years. He now manages Slipknot and has for many years, he runs, um, 5B management. So yes, Corey was a great marketer at the time. And, and I came in, I came into the radio department. So Beggar's Banquet at that time was a really small label in the U.S., I was working for Leslie Bleakley, who ran the office, and there were only three other people in the office. There was Brendan Burke, who ran publicity, Jim Heffernan ran sales and IT, or or more sales, and then I came in in a quasi sort of radio promotion, ad placement, and IT role. And, you know, I brought in a lot of my... Wow, that's an interesting... Yeah, combination. Yeah. It's a weird combo. Especially for the time where people didn't necessarily equate marketing and IT needing to be even talking to each other much. Well, the first thing I did was I, I realized there was this sort of half finished FileMaker database that had not really been FileMaker. Yes, FileMaker. <laughs> and it had not really been uh it had not really been um thought it had been thought through but it hadn't really been finished and so i spent probably more of my time than i should have at the time trying to integrate that into other parts of the business so trying to create a module you know relational modules and all that kind of all that kind of stuff um and this is important because it's going to lead to what wound up being the rest of my career so because I was in this position in the U.S. office of being the person that sort of everybody sort of slowly migrated towards sending anything related to digital music to me, I was asked at one point to start joining these meetings that we called the dog meetings, the digital organizational group. And dog meetings were all of the label heads for beggars. Now, this is this is at the corporate level. So this is um over in the uk so this would have been the head of 4ad the head of two pure the head of xl richard russell um and and all of these um uh, gary walker the head of ouija all of them would meet um on uh on a regular basis and would talk about what was happening in digital music and So we started doing these meetings on a regular basis um, by phone at first, and um, it became clear about six months into this, so this would have been about a a year and six months into my tenure at Beggars, that there was an opportunity to build out an area um, in the digital space at Beggars. And so I remember Martin Mills, the chairman of Beggars, saying on a call, who's interested in or is anybody in this meeting interested in taking this role? And it was crickets. So I said, 
I'll do it. And the reason I said I'll do it is because I was the one who wasn't running a record label or who wasn't, it didn't have sort of an established, if you will, position at Beggars. I was sort of a catch-all. And that's how I got into digital music. So 1997, this move turned out to be, if you will, a lucky jump. But I always call the career jumps that I've had in my in my career educated luck because they they are luck and I'm I'm um I don't ever pretend that I have more information than everybody else does, but I think I'm good at identifying opportunity. So for me this felt like opportunity and I jumped at it and then of course that launched a twenty five year career in digital music. Well, I think also from the stories you've told so far, you have an um, appetite for taking a bigger risk. And some people have really different appetites for that. We've had lots of people on this show who increment a lot and it ends up steering into something that is wildly different, that's creating something new. Other people see that there's a gigantic hole and jump into filling it, whether or not they have the skills you've got a whole interesting story of iterative puzzle pieces, but then you have said yes to taking big identity leaps into the next thing to be and do that's something totally different, but it's not, it's taking ABC you've been piling up and moving it to the next space, but being willing to step into the next space. It's not what a lot of people are in digital. A lot of people we've run into in, in digital music, especially either come from the outside and go, Oh, I love music. I've been doing digital. Let me displace something that I see from the outside is broken. Um, or they've been just this massive rabble rouser or they bolted on repeatedly as the digital person in a bunch of different companies. You've sort of, generated yourself but generated sort of you know dick 2.0 dick 3.0 yeah. very much i guess very much digital moniker as you move forward but then been able to kind of own your own space with it too which is a, a really great thing now you Thank you. you have your time with beggars and so um and doing digital for beggars what spurred the shift to toolshed and then other things that you've done, what, um, what took you from that sort of identity and practice and building into what you're building now? And then I'll drag you into all the cool things you're doing now. Great. Thank you. So what took me there was, was really where the, where the beggar's job headed. So because of the timing, because it was 1997. I can still remember the first MP3 conversation I had with, with Rich Holtzman, who was at 4AD at the time and now manages Portugal, the man where Rich said, Oh, there's this thing called an MP3. And I said, well, that's an MP3. And he said, well, it's a digital music file. <laughs> and, you know, th so that's where we were at the time. This was really, really early days. And, you know, beggars um, already enjoyed, I mean, they had just had, massive worldwide success with the prodigy at that time with fat of the land so you know they were labeled that sort of all eyes were on beggars right around the time i started there and i got this sort of pole position of watching martin work with um 
work with individual artists, work with individual record labels, start to assemble a group. He brought in 4AD um, as, as a wholly owned um, member of the group, if you will, during that time, um, you know, from a relationship that was split with Ivo Watts Russell. And um, so, and, and we were also able to articulate this whole licensing structure around free music and licensing free music versus just giving it to people. So we created this whole license structure and that's what got me interested when I left beggars, which was really a function of, Hey, I'm, you know, a, at that point, a 38 or 39 year old guy, and I'm still not making very much money. And I live in New York city with a family and I can't keep doing it on an independent label salary. So to Martin's credit, um, he sat down with me and said, look, we'll, we'll structure a deal that will um, essentially pay you what you would have earned um, at beggars, but also all the money that we would have spent on you at beggars, we'll pay that to you and let you start your own business. So they gave me the leap. Martin gave me the leap. And I, I have huge respect for him and always will have huge respect for him for having made that bet on me. And not only, so not only did they become my first consulting client at Toolshed, but at the time, Martin encouraged me to. Um, uh, to get involved with the sound exchange board. And he said, look, um, you know, we, we, there was a recent acquisition of Matador records or a partial acquisition of Matador records. Um, I think that happened in 2001 or 2000. So he said, uh, you can represent Matador records and um, uh, you'll be our sound exchange representative to the board. And that lasted for another nine years. And during that time, of course, I was building my business, but having this relationship with Beggar's, uh, Beggar's Group and with Matador was hugely important because it gave me uh, an element of gravitas, an element of being sort of in the middle of what was happening with this sort of growing space of digital music. When I started at Sound Exchange, you know, they were bringing in maybe 20 to $40 million a year in digital music. Of course, that now is over a billion dollars a year. Yeah. And this was early internet radio-ish. Very early. So this was not interactive as much, right? So can you, for those, most people in the music space should know sound exchange. If not, that's a whole other conversation. But can you share for those who don't what sound exchange is? Sure. So <clears throat> as, you, as you mentioned, sound exchange focuses on non-interactive music so that's that's music that you listen to passively so you turn on your radio that's non-interactive radio you you're, you're not able to influence it other than calling the dj and asking him to play something him or her to play something um you know that contrasts interactive music and interactive fully interactive music is what the digital music services have built or are building and that would be that would be Apple Music, that would be now Spotify, and um, in those early days, companies like Good Noise, with Good Noise, which became eMusic, you might remember them, mm -hmm. and uh, certainly Rhapsody was around at the at that point. They were one of the very early interactive digital streaming companies where you could listen to any music that you wanted to. So. All you of this was pretty experimental. Skip more than X 
per hour so that you were essentially listening to someone's curated example and experience. Uh, Pandora, uh, Life 365, I think is back, but at the time, um, other folks where you had a more passive listening experience to a curated experience, which was for a lot of people, their online music. That's right. That's right. Subscription was not, you know, it's not like today. Subscription was something that, you know, music geeks signed up for. And so, of course, I had subscriptions to all of it. But it really was, you know, this idea that, that you know, SoundExchange was focused on building the market for non-interactive music was uh, a really, really important it was an important role for them to play. Um, you, you might recall in the middle of the 2006, approximately 2007, there was a small webcaster settlement that I was deeply involved with. And, you know, that was um, about creating a licensing structure that would work for small webcasters who would be focusing on presumably independent music, for instance. And, you know, so so all of the all of this this sort of handoff, if you will, from beggars to me saying, okay, this will this will give you a, um, a chunk of music industry gravitas, and you go build your company, but you can't just have beggars as a client. You got to go find some other clients too. Um, led me to think, okay, well, I'm going to reach out to Slim Moon at Kill Rock Stars and see if Slim is interested in having me. Uh, uh, be his digital guy as a consultant and do his, his, you know, blog marketing for him, which is something that really only two or three other companies were in at that point. And uh, also do his digital licensing for him and also host his downloads for him. Cause that was expensive back then. Um, mm. And one of, one of my employees at the time figured out a very inexpensive way to host downloads. So we had this sort of uh, tripart solution that we could offer to independent record labels and they ate it up. We, um, it's, it's not hyperbola to say that there really wasn't another company that was focused on the independent label space like we were. And we literally went around and cherry picked our favorite record labels. So Kill Rock Stars, Spin Art, Righteous Babe, Ani DiFranco's label, Merge Records, Touch and Go, Saddle Creek, P.S. I mean, we literally just went around the world looking for who are the great record labels, who have the great catalogs of music. And I thought, if I build a brand that's identified with really high quality music, I can't lose. And that's exactly what happened. So what now then is, um, is Dick 2022 and Toolshed 2022 in an environment that has gotten to be mostly digital, mostly streaming, um, and now looking at all sorts of new technologies, what is the competitive advantage from having this phenomenal, diverse, high quality, having done a bit of everything career journey, what's now look like? So to, uh, I'll do this quick, but to get to that point, you have to, you have to look at what happened inside the music business from 
2002 when I started Toolshed, where digital music was maybe between two and five percent of sales, to about 2010, where all of a sudden it was 60 percent of sales, and where all of these record labels, most of the record labels, I should say, started pulling all of this back in house. They said, okay, this is 60% of our revenue. We need a digital person in house. It can't just be this one guy who, you know, works external to our company. And you know, we should be doing our own licensing, direct licensing to DSPs. Um, so my clients started peeling off one by one. And I, I kind of saw this coming. So I moved into the social space, but at the same time, I thought I should also start working with tech companies who are looking to work with the independent label uh, community because I know it so well. I've, I've had so many of them as clients. And the first company that I found um, turned out to be a big one. It was Spotify. So I I went in under a bit of a false flag and presented to – I pitched Ken Parks, who was running the U.S. office at that time. It was really just him. And said, hey, I want to come in and talk to you about Merge Records. And then I got in the meeting and I said, so I came in to talk to you about Merge Records, but I also want to understand how you're going to go out and license to all the independents because there are plenty of high-profile examples right now of companies that have really messed this up and approached it poorly. I know this space. I know this. the companies. Can I do this for Spotify? And he hired me to do that as a consultant. And I worked with them for a year and a half around the launch of Spotify in the U.S. during the time of, of uh, so I started in 2010 and worked through 2012. And that opened my eyes to um, the revenue potential, for one, of working in this segment, but also um, got me focused on looking for uh, music tech opportunities instead of music promotion opportunities. And as we sort of moved slowly into and then slowly out of the social media marketing space, um, I got more and more focused on tech. And um, not just tech, <clears throat> it sounds like, but being a bridge to tech, being right? a bridge to tech, to be an accelerator for tech. Yeah. yeah. An accelerator for tech. Um you know, the first the first um, long-term relationship that I had in the tech world was uh, probably with Jaxta. So that was a company that I worked with mm -hmm. for, uh, for the last six and a half years with a very forward-thinking business model and one that the music industry had not really wrapped their head around, focused on something that's not sexy, music metadata, but that is incredibly important. And, um, you know, I was able to be with that company and, uh, you know, and the, the guys of their head of licensing and, and share the importance of metadata um, with not only independent record labels, but with the major record labels and get their heads wrapped around why this all mattered. Um, I would say there was a broad understanding of why what I was doing, you know, either was important or, um, or wasn't important. 
Um, I probably didn't say that quite right, but I guess what I'm get, trying to get across is there's a well, ton of education. Who's it important to and why? Who's it important yeah, to Because a why? lot of it is that, I was about to say that even, again, we've talked about metadata on prior shows, but for some people it's like, well, what is metadata? Is it just having the right auth, you know, songwriter name on the piece and it's depth and it's layers and it's good. It's, it's all the, mu- the information that could be about the track, but that's including who played on the track. And, um, a lot of it is early on was messy and junk and in, in inappropriately put, right. I mean, so part of it is that it's, it's not just the way you track back to how money goes back to the song, but it's lots of information about the track. Yeah, there, there's, I think that's a fair way of putting it. You know, the, for me, I approach the metadata question um, as a response to a failure in the marketplace. So when digital music came around, it was very, uh, the presentation of information that came with digital music was super commodified. You know, what's the name of the artist? What's the name of the album? What's the name of the track? How long is it done? You know, is there is the maybe what year? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, start start. Let's say starting at starting at iTunes, the original iTunes player in two thousand four, and you know, I mean, Apple Music didn't um, didn't display uh, label information label information until uh, I, I'm probably going to get the date a little bit wrong, but the late. 2016, 2017, 2018, maybe even later. It was it was a multi-year set of discussions that I had that a ton of other people had um, to try to get just the basic information um, shared. Forget about relationships between bands. You know, hey, uh, you know, um, Stephen Malkmus, you know, is in Pavement, but he also is part of Stephen Malkmus and the Jicks. You know, is there a way that we can get both of those, uh, you know, music? Is there some interconnectivity between those two things? And, you know, many, many, many thousands and tens of thousands of bands that are smaller than Stephen Malkmus. Um, Also, you know, needing to benefit from those relationships and having no connection to the digital music player. So I saw that as a failure in the marketplace that we had lost the record jacket. We had lost the information that was in it. And um, my my desire to be part of JAXTA was to try to start bringing that back. And I would say that, that, that we successfully brought this issue to a front burner for an awful lot of different um, major distributors, major record labels, independent record labels, in a way that it just wasn't in 2015. And so the, to get to the, I think the end of your question, which is what I'm doing now, doing this thing for JAXTA was important for me because it helped me realize that my focus was on big picture enhancements to the music industry. And I look for clients that are focusing on, focusing on something, usually in the tech space, that that solves a problem inside music. And I don't just mean 
a flashy marketing problem, but that really fixes something. So my, you know, my clients today are companies like Entertainment Intelligence, which has, uh, you know, a company that's been around for, for quite some time, but that has, you know, the preeminent uh, music analysis platform for independent record labels and distributors. Um, you know, it's a really a high-end, um, highly granular product. And there's a big market for that. You know, it's post-revenue. Um, AIMS API, the Artificial Intelligence Music Search Platform, is also, um, it's a big picture idea in that it it optimizes music similarity, it allows you to take a song and match it against the catalog and find other songs that are similar to it. So if, for instance, you're, you know, a music supervisor and you give a brief to a label and say, hey, you know, I really want to use this, I don't know, Lady Gaga track but I can't afford it. So do you have anything that sounds like this Lady Lady Gaga track? Ames will show you that. So I, I just think that's, it also does other things. It does tagging, et cetera. But I think that's fascinating technology. So I look for those kind of entities for business development work. And um, going back to this idea of a stool uh, with three legs, um, that's a big chunk of what I do at Toolshed now. The second chunk is to try to stay affiliated with record labels or um, companies looking specifically for music licenses. Um, so um, I, I hope to expand the record label part of, of our business going forward into 2022, 2023. I have some ideas. And then this educational tech and new tech piece, which is for me focusing on teaching and which, which I have always loved, as I said earlier, uh, but also focusing on some of the new um, community-focused things happening in the music industry, uh, specifically around Web3 and DAOs, creative communities. I am particularly interested in the community aspect of a... Of creating and monetizing a community to the benefit of all of its members. That to me is. Yeah, we could probably spend a, a half hour talking about Web3 yes. and DAOs. So DAOs, we haven't talked about, I don't think yet on, uh, on this show, uh, distributed autonomous organizations, right? Correct. Which I know that Sherry who has been building her one uh, along with her token that goes with that. And, that's probably even a whole deeper rabbit hole than the time of it. And maybe we can do a follow-up conversation on next generation communities, which could be really cool. Um, but you're teaching also though, right? I teach for, I teach for Scott Galloway's new company. So he has an ed tech company, educational tech. And um, for those of your listeners who know who Scott is, his reputation precedes him. If you don't know who he is, he's an NYU professor He's also a serial entrepreneur. He's had a couple spectacular flameouts and a couple very spectacular exits. And is now he does a podcast with Kara Swisher. He does his own podcast. He was on CNN. He's regularly on a wide variety of business shows. So um, 
you know, I, I became really interested in the financial tech space and I'm still very interested in it and did some consulting and advisory work for um, a couple different companies, including Paper Chain, which was focused on optimizing sort of the payment process for, uh, for artists and for labels um, in digital music. And I thought, okay, I can't do worse than upping my financial game. So I'm going to associate with this business leader who's got great command of the financial space and financial lingo. And as it happened, I took a, a very early class that he offered in, in um, subscription strategy and got noticed and was asked to be a teaching assistant um, for subsequent classes. And since that time, about uh, a year and a half ago, I've taught 15 different classes for the company. So that's been a ton of fun and a real learning experience, an opportunity to move outside of our fairly small music business to a global cohort of companies working in CPG and you know big corporations. Um, so it gave me access to a part of the music, or part of the business world that I'd never really got. I never really had corporate experience, and all of a sudden. I was in a position to talk to people who had worked for corporations their whole life and understand, you know, what it was like to work at a corporation and, and, you know, the unique challenges that you have when you work at a corporation. So it rounded out my background and that's why I did it and why I'm still doing it. So we've covered a lot here. We talked a lot about your iterative career building, which has been some big pivots but wonderful expansions into new spaces. We talked about what you wanted to do when you started out and you have two kids. What journey path have they seen of yours is kind of oh, three kids, three kids. So what journey paths have they taken from your journey and where are they going is my last question as we get toward the wrap up here. Great. Thanks. Well, so, and this is actually the one other thing that I wanted to talk about. Um, <coughs> my, so my my three kids, uh, they're all in their 20s now. They're all girls. Two of them live where I live now, which is in the Columbia River Gorge, about an hour east of Portland. And the other one lives in Boston. I would say that when I, when I started my own business, you know, on one hand, back in 2002, on one hand, it was uh, it was about you know, trying to create a financial framework that would work for our family that would let me put some kids through college. But the other part of it was I've always been a big believer in stories and in creating a story for yourself, creating a brand around yourself, if you will. And <clears throat> um, my kids growing up always saw me being part of their life, being very close to them, working in this little office that was right outside our, uh, you know, a farmhouse in the Hudson Valley, where I lived at the time, um, you know, gardening. Um, we started a garden, my wife and I started a garden co-op and invited dozens of families, including <laughs> some people who are um, pretty highly placed now at Apple and Amazon uh, to be part of this thing. 
And my kids saw all this growing up. So we had, we'd have lots of events. We'd have lots of parties at the house that were music related or music connected with music people. And so all of them, um, got to see me create a, a story around myself that was, um, deliberate, even if they didn't really know it was deliberate. So I think all of them have, you know, they're all big travelers. Um, they're all, um, uh, my eldest daughter's in a, um, business development career for a startup in San Francisco, um, and, but worked in the ski industry prior to that. So, um, middle daughter works for an ad agency in Boston. Youngest daughter is a medical assistant. They're all, they're all pretty worldly. They're all, um, they all understand the value of creating a story and, um, and they, and they probably see me still doing it. You know, I mean, it's moving to the Columbia river gorge. Uh, if when you're not retiring is not something that everybody does. COVID did make it possible. And I'm really glad that it made it possible, but you know, it's, for me, it's just another iteration of uh, my personal story and where I'm trying to take it and how I'm trying to remain relevant in music, uh, you know, to both further, you know, my particular spin on what's happening in the digital world, but also to, uh, to allow me to continue to advocate on behalf of the artist community, which is where it all started for me and what's really important for me. Um, and, and when I, when I look for, when I look to drill down into something, I always try to take a look at how does this look from the artist's perspective? What's going to happen to the artist that this impact, and you know, you don't always have all the information you need, but you do the best you can. Dick, it's been great. We've covered so much. Is there anything else you want to mention before we close out here today? Um, I think the only thing I would say is, um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I feel very blessed to have been able to come up in music and make choices that weren't uh, they weren't tied to climbing a corporate ladder. Um, and um, also to have, have been um, able to make a really, really wide friend circle and network of music industry colleagues, um, not just in independent music, but in the major uh, label space and the tech space Um I, I think I'm very fortunate to have been able to do that. And the way that I've been able to kind of pull that all together is by always being open and willing to take that phone call from somebody who needed a hand or a leg up, um, either starting in the business or someone who's thinking about changing careers. Um, you know, without ever being really sure where it was, how that was going to come back, to me or whether it was even going to compete with me at some level or another. So um, I feel happy to have had the sort of self-confidence, if you will, to go out and um, be that networker who pulls together disparate groups, you know, going back to when I was a 
the kid, uh, you know, being captain of the University of Michigan ski team to early digital music days, you know, creating a digital music collective around um, around uh, heads of digital at independent record labels. Um, all of this has worked for me in my career. And whenever I talk to people who are getting into the music business and they say, how do I do, how do I do this? How do I do that? I say, you know, you, you have to get to give or you have to give to get. And, and um, giving means giving without an expectation of something coming back to you. So if you can do that, if you can be that person that assembles other people that helps other people collectivize in one way or another, you're going to find a path. You're going to find connections. You're going to find people that want to be in your orbit. And um, so, yeah, that's my big blessing. And, and the thing that I'm still trying to do at almost 60 years old, here I am. <laughs> hey, so Dick, um, who would you like to reach out to you and how would you like them to reach out to you? Um, well, I'm um, I'm always available um, on socials. I think the best place to connect with me is probably over LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook as much as I used to be these days, and I really try to reserve that for more personal friends. So, um, you know, follow me on socials. I'm pretty active on Twitter um, at dhuman d h u m as in Mary a n as in Nancy. Um, or on LinkedIn, we'll you can notes. find me there. You can find mm -hmm. our website at, at toolshed.biz, B as in boy, I-Z. And, um, and I encourage people to write, reach out to me. I always answer emails. I'm sure somebody's going to write in and say, oh, I never answered my email, but I always try to answer <laughs> emails. I'm pretty good about it. And I love hearing from people. I love hearing new ideas. I love you know, people reaching out to me and saying, I've got this problem inside this complex business we call music. Can you help me fix it? So um, I encourage people to reach out and um, I'll be here to listen. Sounds great. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Creative Innovators. We are expanding our footprint. So we invite you to go to creativeinnovatorspodcast.com and find us on Substack, where we are creating a new matrix of our past shows that you can find them more easily and find them along with the career adventure guide content, where you can take your own career and use some of the tools in the setup to both be inspired by past episodes of Creative Innovators, as well as become a bigger and better creative innovator yourself. We're also launching in a couple of other platforms this year. So stay tuned and join our lists and, and find out where else you can find and combine with Creative Innovators in 2024. <music>